When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah, welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. We're recording on Thursday, February 4th, 2021. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we come to you at if I mean, it's kind of a momentous day in the history of books and reading, at least our little part of it. It is. Um, and I, you know, it's hard to know how much it matters going forward. But it's a chance uh, to look back, and that we're talking about um, the announcement this week that Jeff Bezos stepping down as CEO of Amazon, assuming the role of executive chairman of the board, will get a little wonky um, about uh, governorship of, of corporations, because it does and doesn't matter a little bit. But it's a, it's a signal day, I think, in a lot of ways, and we'll get into that a little bit. But first, let's do our first sponsor break, and then uh, we'll come back. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book, titled The Dare, is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. You were off last week. I was. Um, when Jen and I were talking about the new lawsuit brought against Amazon and then the big five publishers named as co-conspirators 
in an ebook price fixing lawsuit. Amazon's big enough now. And there's so many pies with so many fingers of such size that this kind of thing I don't think would precipitate Bezos stepping down next yeah. the week after. But it's hard not to notice it's, at least that like it's hard it not is. to at least have it's, that context in mind. Yeah, I think it's very tempting to think that the timing is connected. And then my second almost immediate thought is that Bezos is cannier than that. And if that if the reason he were stepping down is the uh, is the lawsuit i think he would like wait a little while <laughs> yeah right. also these transitions right. take a long time to plan mm-hmm. and this probably had been planned for quite a while and then maybe most importantly this is not a man who is unfamiliar with being sued for things and accused of collusion right. yes <laughs> and and yeah no, i don't <laughs> that experience has not yet prompted him to resign his post so much as it would be a juicy story I'm going to agree. I don't think that's what this was about. (laughs) But it does bring home, again, the centrality of Amazon. I mean, over the last 20 years, Amazon has been the story of books and reading. I think hard upon or maybe right next to, on the business side, it's certainly Amazon. On On the cultural, philosophical, creative content side, it's about diversity and marginalization research. But those two stories have been the twin pillars of what the story of books and reading have been. Certainly over the last seven years we've been doing the show, six years we've been doing the show, and then going back really until 99 or so when Amazon became a real force um, in the world of book selling. And it's almost, we're almost so, it's like it's, this is water moment with how influential Amazon has been and what they what that company has done. Um Look, you can go crazy about stuff like this. I'm tempted to inflate the importance. There's a recency bias element here. But if you think about Audible, you think about Kindle, you think about selling books online, you think about Goodreads, some of these things they've bought, but there you go, and they, they've they've bought them. What an amazing, in, in all senses of the word amazing, disruptive, eruptive, constructive force Amazon has been on the world of books and reading. It's it's not Gutenberg, but I think in the fullness of time, it not might, might not be far behind, Rebecca. I, I don't know. I'm yeah. not sure how to think about that. I've never had occasion to sort of think about Amazon, the historical context of books, the codex, the written word, etc. I think you're right. You know, the panic around the development of ebooks really mirrored the kind of panic that you see at disruptive moments around technology. And if you just map it onto the history of books and reading, you know, paperbacks were a disruption. And then and like prior to that, um, hardcovers, like the codex was seen as a disruption to the way Mm -hmm. that stories were passed on because people now were not gathered around telling them to each other. Um, Clive Thompson does a really beautiful job of tracking all of this in a book from several years ago called Smarter Than You Think. Um, That's fundamentally about, which we've talked about, but it's I think it's been years um, on the show. That's fundamentally about how technology doesn't actually make us dumber, um, at least not in the ways that we like to talk about. And there's usually a panic over any major disruption to the way that a thing is done in the same way that like television was a major disruption to radio. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And that also did not ruin the world, I don't think. Um, I think you're right. I don't know that it's Amazon was the major disruption so much as that 
the development of digital reading was the major disruption and Amazon was the vector through which that really Mm -hmm. happened. Um, Publishers weren't super incentivized to make a big deal of their eBooks for all the reasons that we've gone over in the the last many years of the show that they were concerned about protecting the margins, especially of hardcover books and not cannibalizing those sales. And Amazon did not have that motivation and they had the technology mm. power to make ebooks become popular and then they had the ability to use ebooks especially as as loss leaders and to discount them and the combination of all of those things was just incredibly powerful and i do think that we owe the proliferation and the speed of the proliferation of e-reading technology to amazon for sure yeah and and some of it is the collection and consolidation of various new technologies and trends. Like Gutenberg himself did not invent everything in the tech stack that led to the printing press. I mean, you can go back, like, basically because of improvements in horticulture, grapes were brought further up from the Mediterranean, so there were grape presses around. Or was it olives? I can't remember. Either, But the presses came further north into Europe, so there was an available orthogonal move from, like, oh, look how they used those presses. I wonder if I put those presses on, you know, type with ink and mm-hmm. paper, but ink and paper and type also had to be co-invented. So again, the I think we sometimes oversimplify how these epoch-making technologies and transitions happen, but just because all the technologies that were there doesn't mean it was inevitable, inevitable in that time and place that they would come together in that way. Another book, if you're, this is more of an academic book. I probably talked about this before in the show. Academic book by Walter Ong, who's a cultural historian. His book called Orality into Literacy blew my mind when I read it in graduate school. It was about the transition from oral cultures into into writing cultures. You know, essentially, you've seen like probably versions of this in like, I don't know, a popular one, a popular imagination one is in the movie 300, where Xerxes sends a messenger to Leonidas and the Spartans, and like that's the that's the word of the king, right? The messenger and the herald, and like this is this is this is how you know the communication is legit. Well, then when rulers could start writing on pieces of paper, initially that was thought of how do I anyone could have written this, right? Anyone, how do I? I don't have the messenger telling me, and that's the king. <laughs> then you had to get the seal and everything else. But even even liter even literacy itself yeah. was thought of skeptically, and so every step along the way, everyone was like, have to be dragged, kicking and screaming into the future and i think that's something amazon did yeah is dragged publishing kicking and screaming into the future because they made stuff readers wanted that's just the truth i think you're right i think there's also i can imagine a season of like an updated season of halt and catch fire that starts in like the year 2000 you know that like now what we have is not the fight to convince people that they want personal technology we've already done that most of them have computers in their homes but that Mm -hmm. you want portable personal technology and that it's a it's a phone and the technology around that starts to get developed where everything gets smaller and more powerful. You have the ability to make the screens and the processors and the internet has to be robust enough for it to work. And that all of those things were being developed at the same time that Jeff Bezos was building Amazon as a basically giant distributor of things. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if if that hadn't happened outside the walls of, you know, Amazon's offices, if people hadn't been working on all of those pieces of technology, they probably would have just continued to ship people paper books forever, which they're still 
happy to do, but he very intelligently saw the opening there of like, yeah. we could take these pieces of technology, we could deliver ebooks on them and it was done more elegantly like my first e-reader was a sony device and i don't remember now what the and it was probably around like 2009 maybe mm -hmm. um i don't remember the steps of the process but it was incredibly complicated to get an ebook from the internet onto my sony e-reader oh, yes <laughs> and the technology that bezos built up around the kindle um, really enabled them to deliver in an efficient mm -hmm. way. And it's that efficiency sort of all the way around. The efficiency and ease of use, regardless of what you're buying from Amazon, is the compelling thing about Amazon at this point. That's right. And that ease of use, and I've never heard Bezos talk about this, and we, sh we, will, we should and will talk about the, you know, the darker, you know, what all of this has come at cost in a lot of different ways. And Amazon is by no means a perfect company. And Bezos has, has his own problems and blindnesses like any human does. Um, but I think, I think it's hard. It, it's easier to see now that the person who had maybe more faith than anybody else in the value of words that people read was Amazon mm -hmm. because they were basically saying the content is so important and so popular and so durable that it matters less what format it comes in than it gets to people, whether it's spoken in audio or digitally read or provided by a self-published author or bought in paperback at a discount or whatever, that reading can hold up to that kind of a change. When really for the, the conservative romantic reader didn't kind of believe that, and nor does publishing, and nor does publishing, and I, I think that's one thing we've been charting over time, is the heel dragging. Mm -hmm. um, and this year, if any, the durability, but also the flexibility of delivering words to people in a variety of formats, that kind of diversity of format has become really, really important. And I think it's enriched a lot of people's reading lives. It's always hard to know. You can't A-B test the universe. If we would have gotten something like this richness without the centrality and economic might of Amazon, I don't know. But one thing I know about Bezos is he did not care what the establishment said. And that's good if you're trying to make change. It also makes you an egoist and you do things and you do break some things at the same time. Because some of those establishment things are like unions and healthcare and right. labor laws. And like, that's also yeah, part of it, right? It's very hard. You can't take I, one without the other. Right, I think so it's that's a, important to say. It really is important to say that that's a real double-edged sword and they are features yeah. and bugs of each other. That you can't have one without the other. You can't have someone who disrupts at that level. Like, it requires a real like confidence, arrogance, maybe both to believe. Sometimes that, we call it vision. Yeah. I think sometimes that's just arrogance. <laughs> recast differently. Right. Ar yeah. Arrogance with a little shine on it. Yeah. Um, to sure believe title. that your to believe that your idea is really that powerful and that you can execute mm. it and change the world. And people yeah. who have that kind of wiring are also pretty confident that they can disrupt a whole bunch of other things in the process, like unions and yeah. healthcare and, you know, safe working environments and <laughs> right. it's right it's the postal system like right. entire mechanisms right. of infrastructure like, i think that it's that we feel like we've had amazon forever and it has been around for many years but it continues to be so disruptive and disruptive in mm. new ways that we don't have any real 
perspective yet. Like being able to tell the story of the changes Amazon created in American society or in world culture. I, I, f- I think that's a job for the 2030s, yeah, you know, right. or, or beyond. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's just hard to g- get our heads around. And I think because we're still in the middle of it in so many ways. And you're right that he had really deep faith in the durability of people's interest in the written word. And I understand why the jump from all the varieties of paper book to sure. e-reading felt in the moment like a more significant break than you know the development of paperbacks themselves mm-hmm, or, or anything mm-hmm. like that i think in hindsight the change in format itself is actually not meaningful reading an ebook does not feel meaningfully different really from getting the information in your brain by holding a paper book or by listening to an audiobook for that matter and you know i produced an episode of annotated about did technology <laughs> kill reading and the scientific conclusion has been no i think really it's that that technology changes how we interact with the world so much and that's also part of the bezos situation too amazon is not a book selling company. They're not really a distributor. No. I think you, uh, the, the most correctly, we should talk about Amazon as a technology company and that they're looking for ways to make money innovating with technology. And first That's it right. was selling things on the internet, then it was selling digital things, selling internet things on the internet and delivering them with the internet. And well, then it literally became, now it okay. powers the right. internet. And that's, yes. I think that leads nicely into the fact that Bezos's successor is coming from Amazon web services. They're, they they sell the internet. They use right. the internet to sell the internet to other people. And then so they, they sell they you the, the ability to make internet where you can sell stuff. I know it's an amazing, I mean, again, there will be books written for as long as people care about corporations. I mean, people still write about GE. They write about Ford. They write about companies that stopped. I mean, I know because I've read a lot of these boring books um, that I find fascinating. And you're right. We're in the middle of this story. It's like trying to get a sense of Gutenberg's important while Gutenberg was still alive. Like you just couldn't do it at the same time. Um, But it gives us a chance to stop and reflect. And does what, if anything, does it mean for our little corner of Amazon's empire I think it's telling, as you said, that the person taking his gig comes from web services. I think that's extremely, extremely telling. It's not coming from the many tentacled octopus of retail, right? Direct-to-consumer retail, Mm -hmm. which it easily could. It's not the Amazon Prime video people. It's not someone from, it's not, you know, whoever's in charge of Alexa. Or Whole Um, Foods. It's not someone that comes from their distribution. Yeah, or Whole Foods or their their distribution empire, something like that. Amazon Web Services, in terms of profit margin, is their most profitable business because they're selling. Anytime you can sell electrons, you're better off than selling atoms. It's an old adage. <laughs> well, it's an old adage that's been around since technology was around, essentially. But like, it costs them way less to, to deliver Amazon Web Services to clients because they, you know, don't have to put it in a box and ship it to Sheboygan um, if no one wants to buy it there. I think there's some of the elegance of the business model now is they needed internet scale that didn't exist. So they built it. And then they were the low cost producer of internet 
for right. the internet to buy from them, which is a remarkable hat trick um, yeah, to pull off. It's like pulling a rabbit out of another rabbit. Right. As much of another it hat. is. And I have no evidence for this. It's just a gut feeling that I think if Amazon could get out of the selling physical objects and delivering them business, mm. they they would. That the margins on making technology and selling technology and building the backbone of the internet is yeah. like that that really is where the money is because the overhead is so minimal like think about how much all those warehouses must cost them and yeah. the tr- the trucks and the boxes and all of that stuff that makes retail a lower margin business especially if you're a retailer who's driven by discounts and then by having to pay mm-hmm. for speedy delivery of things mm-hmm. like i do think that this is a signal about amazon's near to midterm priorities and strategy yeah, um, Clint and I, Clint, um, our, our colleague here at Bookride, we were talking about it because he was he was excited to hear what we were going to say about it, and we're like, it's hard to read too much into it. Um, you know, what does it mean for Amazon? I think the only thing we know now, Amazon also had a blowout quarter, um, mm-hmm. as you might expect, in the fourth quarter of a pandemic year. It's the the table was set sort of unbelievably, terrifyingly beautiful for Amazon to do its thing this year, um, but. The web services person taken over again. He could have this guy could have just demonstrated exceptional executive acumen. You know, you don't get to that job either. Remember, probably that company alone is one of the five hundred biggest companies in the world. That division, right. so it's not like it's just somebody that was sitting around waiting. To They're get not just off like the promoting Dave from accounting or something. No, no, no. Yeah, like the twentieth most influential person at Amazon would be like the CEO of any Fortune five hundred company uh, easily. Um, but I think it's interesting. It's interesting to think about what it might mean that Bezos is stepping away because he's not old by any stretch of the imagination. He could have stepped away long ago if it was, I have enough money. Um, And at the very least, I think you can sort of abstract it and say, whatever is the case is right now, Bezos is interested. Other Something else is more interesting to him than Amazon, which I think is interesting actually for itself because I was thinking about you know, think about your Apples, your Googles, your Facebook, your Netflix, or, Am- you know, the FANG companies, as it's called in investing, right? Um, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, right? Which has powered so mm-hmm. much of the American stock market, but also world technological blitz over the last five to 10 years. Which of them has the most interesting future from right now? I think Amazon, I would put last myself. Because I feel like it's kind of done the thing. Like, what's the next interesting Amazon thing you can think of? Like, for example, Apple's like thinking about a headset, thinking about a car. You know, Facebook is growing still. You know, it's a mess. They've got a lot of work to do. That like Zuckerberg's legacy is very much in doubt. I guess oh, is one yeah. thing I would say about Facebook over there. Google has a bunch of these. It's now Alphabet. It's not even called Google anymore, and it's got this all these other things it's that it's interested in. It's really playing in a different way. Netflix is right in the middle of the war. But they're in the middle of this streaming war. Um, and who does that lead? I, I guess that's it. And, and, and like, what's the next thing Amazon could do that's fascinating to me? Yeah, I can't think of anything, Rebecca. Can you? I mean, no, do you see what's going with I, this? I can't either. And that's sort of the line I've been taking as well, thinking about why now yeah. for Bezos. Right. And my best guess is he's done and bored 
or at least more interested in something else. And if you reflect on like the other big technologies of the last couple decades, Amazon tried to be part of all of those. Like, all, you know, they they were the ones who started it with the Kindle and e-reading. That was the big splash. But when iPhones were taking off, they tried a Kindle phone. That did not work. Or the Fire phone, I think it was called. Like, that wasn't a thing. They've tried to compete in the other ways. Amazon streaming mm. is sort of like now regularly derided as, you know, that Amazon's streaming services have the lowest quality content or the least amount of interesting content relative to Netflix and Hulu and Apple and Disney mm-hmm. and, you know, all the other players. They they aren't competing in the other big ways right now. And I think building the backbone of the internet is a reliable way to keep making money. And the internet only gets bigger and bigger. More people make websites and are finding ways to connect. You can stay in business for a long time providing web services yeah. and focusing on those kinds of things. But I don't think that's terribly exciting in terms of it's a commodity right i mean is it that interesting i don't know that it's it's much more than a commodity it's just a thing that exists in the world now i don't Mm -hmm. see a lot of headroom for amazon to keep making big splashes and maybe after running the company for this long bezos has come to that conclusion as well like we we have made our name and now it's more about steady as she goes and staying in business and like smaller incremental changes rather than trying to make big disruptive ones would sort of be my guess about the direction of the company. I'm more interested, I think, really in how the profile of Amazon changes as Bezos is less of a part of the conversation. Like he is so, and for, I think, very good reasons aligned in the press and in many of our sort of ways of thinking about Amazon and the internet as this person who has maybe questionable morals. I'm not going to go so far as to say that he's evil. His businesses definitely make decisions that I don't care for. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know him as a human being. Um, but he like he's so closely tied to the brand and criticism of him is so closely tied to criticism of Amazon and also for very good reason but it's kind of like you know Tim Cook is a lot less visible at Apple than Steve Jobs was and we don't talk about Apple all that much anymore Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's what's going to happen with Amazon as well and as Bezos recedes from the picture like maybe we'll continue to talk about Amazon's corrupt practices and I actually think that that would be a more productive conversation I think so too I agree with you that could lead to real change like that's a a much more effective criticism I think than than Jeff Bezos is a bad person so we should take his company down like let's actually look at the company's practices how is the company violating violating policy. And I know this might sound like semantics, but I do think that the PR around these things matters. And then if you want to get widespread sort of movement or motion behind the idea of disengaging from Amazon or being less reliant on Amazon, messaging it all around how Bezos is bad dude is not nearly as effective as look at what this company does. And previous efforts to move consumers away from other companies with bad practices have been successful by focusing on the practices and the company, not the one guy. Yeah, as he functions as a lightning rod, both for good and for ill. Gets a lot of the shine, as Mm -hmm. you said, for, for, for the company's rise, but also as a useful receptacle of critique. And if he sloughs it off, and everyone, you know... It's such a it's such an enterprise now that he cannot reasonably or even possibly 
be informed and involved in every kinds of even meaningful decision Amazon makes all the way down through its subsidiaries, right? So oh, like yeah. focusing on the local, focusing on the actual action rather than here's a thing Amazon does, boy, I hate Bezos, really evacuates yeah, you, a lot of the energy about change. For a company that size, you have to assume that he's completely unaware of the vast yeah. majority of decisions that are made any day. Right. That's right. That's right. Because, you know, the CEO at, at the level, I mean, the hundreds of thousands of employees selling billions of products and millions of transactions mm -hmm. a month just can't be like right. he's probably doing all he can to manage the seven people that report to him who right. themselves like, I was are say, running like, giant corporations we have 15 full-time staff I and know. there are God, dozens of decisions made every week that like not only do i not know what the yeah. decision was i don't even know what took place right i don't even know what i don't know yeah i don't even know that on. conversation's happening i can't imagine no. the scale of it in a company like amazon and i think it misses the point to align bezos so yeah. closely with it in a way it's smart strategy and i wouldn't put it past him to let himself be the lightning rod and yeah. know that that distracts from productive movement against amazon itself that's right. When he shaved his head back in 2004, <laughs> whenever that was, he's like, I'm just going Lex Luthor. <laughs> like the name Elon Musk was already taken. So yeah. I'll just... <laughs> I got to be the bald Bond right. villain at this point. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what else there's, there's to say again as you're in the water, but it's, I think it's a good moment to sort of stick our heads up out of the sand a little bit and say, wow, what, what, for good and for ill, um, a figure unlike any other in my lifetime. Or it's, it's hard to think of an equivalent figure in books and reading um, in the 20th century or the 21st century. I mean, maybe Bennett Cerf at Random House or something like that. It's it's very difficult um, to come up with something else. Now, I mean, in 1995, the the or 96, 97, the the published the industry boogeyman was Len Regio. Right. How many people even know who the hell that is now, Rebecca? Like it's you and me and like some people that were at Bloomsbury in the nineties or, you know, like publishing old timers now, yeah. now even know what it is at this point. But also interesting, I think to say what ha books last year, we don't have it on the agenda today. The big five sold more units last year than ever before, mm -hmm. almost a billion units uh, in the traditional publishing world. And that doesn't include all the self-publishing things, which exploded over the last year. So in terms of unique, and that doesn't include library lending and digital lending, which also had a banner year. Like in terms of words that people bought, borrowed, and read, it could have, just books, forget about the internet. I'm putting all the mm -hmm. internet out there. Like the old, just the old things that would be a book by any other name at this point, probably as read in America in aggregate as any year ever, um, which I don't know that people, if you would have told people that in 2008, when was when were we at the height of Amazon concern? Because I, I think know. we're past the peak of Amazon, like 2011, I, 12, yeah, somewhere Yeah, I think in we there, were maybe. at the height of Amazon slash ebook disruption concern around yeah. 2011, 2012. If you would have told people that in 10 years, not only that independent bookstores will still be around in a pandemic, but more books will have been sold and more will have been borrowed than at any point in American history, they would have said, how did that happen? How did that happen? Yeah, I, and I think that's a really important point that I don't want to get lost in the bigger conversation about Amazon, especially that we've had the internet for long enough now that mm -hmm. I think we can rest in the durability of humans' 
interest and desire and need to have stories and how we get those stories, how we get access to the to the written or printed or digitally manifested word has evolved. But the Internet has not killed books and reading, not anywhere close to it. There may be some future technology that does it. I don't know. But I think that we're far enough now into having the internet (laughs) and having personal internet devices and being able to read on screens to know that this actually is something portable, that, that how we tell the story, the device, the manner of delivery of the story is much less important than just the persistent need that humans have for stories. And there will be something else like who knows when it will be or how long it will take us to get there. But there will be some future evolution in technology and in how books and stories get delivered. And I'm confident that when that happens, there will be another panic that this will be the thing Mm -hmm. that ruins it. So far, that hasn't happened. And that's not to say it never will. Um, But I think we need to be done now. And maybe this moment of Amazon transition can mark the doneness with the hand wringing over what's going to happen to books because of the internet. Because what we've seen is that even in a global pandemic where maybe getting your hands on physical books was difficult, people were still deeply invested in getting them. Many independent bookstores where, you know, had their communities rallying around them to purchase books and keep those businesses open. This is a thing humans care about. Amazon has done a lot of stuff that changed the business. How that all shakes out in the publishing story in the long term remains to be seen. And as we've said, like there are very valid criticisms to make of Amazon's business practices. But in terms of like Amazon ruined reading or is going Mm -hmm. to ruin reading? No. Amazon might ruin the existing business models of some other book selling modes. And I would personally be sad to see that happen but how we our our access to books has not decreased and our hunger for them hasn't decreased either and i think those sales numbers are a really powerful example of that yeah the format doesn't seem to matter Mm -hmm. i mean i think i think that's what we've learned now you're right some you know vr headsets (laughs) have smell a vision or whatever who knows um but the format doesn't seem to matter as of today amazon.com with a market capitalization of 1.6 1.6 trillion wow. with a T trillion dollars. Um, it and Apple have been back and forthing uh, for a little bit over the last year about being the most valuable company ever to have existed in the history of the world, which is saying something. All because Bezos identified books as being especially amenable to online distribution because there were so many damn numbers <laughs> of them that no bookstore, physical bookstore, even the giant ones, could mm-hmm. keep them all right. in stock and service them, nor was it easy to find them. And so the internet, with its infinite browsable shelves um, and ability to deliver through the post office, meant that you could have big warehouses uh, and have all the books ship right from distributors in local locations and have overnight, essentially, the world's biggest bookstore and sell them for cheaper. You can you can certainly, they use them as a loss leader to get people to say, hey, I can buy stuff on Amazon, but you can even sell them at a profit online in a way that other bookstores can't. Um, so it wasn't a ideological, philosophical, 
He wasn't thinking, you know, boy, I'm really going to stick it to the hoi polloi of the world of books and reading by <laughs> making this happen. It was, a, it was a very cagey identification of a business opportunity um, and that books were ripe uh, for someone to come in to try a different business model. Mike Shatskin, who I talked to on an episode of Annotated, mm-hmm. said, you know, the history of book retailing has been who can get the right book to the right person at the right time the fastest. And it's a little hard to imagine we'll do better then I can get it on my phone now um, yeah. at any given moment. Let's take another sponsor break. We'll come back. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must-read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at leebardugothefamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl fighting her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who's moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Abachan died, Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness, um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by Mai K. Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. I guess it's interesting to me that um, I'm going to skip LeVar for a minute. Mm. I want to come back and do a Hero of the Week and skip down to Reese's, Reese Witherspoon's wildly popular book club is now an app. This is a piece by Stephanie Mehta on Fast Company. Um, I meant to download this yesterday and play around with it before today. I didn't get around to it, but it did strike me as an interesting counterpoint to the stagnation in Amazon's book lineup, right? Really, since they bought Goodreads, when was the last interesting thing they really did Mm -hmm. around books? Whereas Reese Witherspoon's book club is trying to fuse celebru celeb fluencing i don't even know what the word celeb fluencing <laughs> with a social network right around yeah. a t- niche topic which is the the conveyance of several streams that i think are all extraordinarily interesting um 
It's a new mobile app that will allow in-app purchases of books and exclusive merchandise. So it's retail built around largely what was has been an Instagram community. I think this is wildly fascinating. Mm-hmm. I don't care about it myself, <laughs> but I find it really, really interesting. Rebecca, am I wrong? How, how are you I'm, feeling about what's I'm here? I'm also really interested in it. And I don't know that I would have made this connection if we weren't talking about Amazon News this week. Mm-hmm. But I think the fact that... You know, that Amazon left Goodreads to their own devices in running Goodreads after they acquired it largely. And then Goodreads didn't really make many changes to the interface, left the door wide open for someone to do this. Like Goodreads' functionality sort of declined over time and it's become more, I've seen more widespread like criticism or complaining about how Goodreads works. That this is, it's really interesting. I think you know, Reese Witherspoon's rise to celebfluencer, which is weird and hard to say, um, <laughs> and being a person whose taste in books the public trusts and is invested in, like, it really is on par with how Oprah was in the 90s and the early 2000s in terms of, like, the, the picks are consistently good enough that readers trust her to keep picking things. And they have a sense that Reese's selections drive book sales, even though, of course, we don't get any real data about like yeah. before and afters of that and these huge communities that have built up. And I think it's really smart that someone was like, you know, instead of having all of our interaction happen on Instagram, where we don't have any control, let's mm-hmm. create an app where we can control the environment, allow community to happen. There, there are going to be, you know, discussion sections. I think there's even eventually going to be events and meetups. Like you could go talk about the Reese's pick with other people in your town. Um, so that's an interesting thing to see. You can buy the book through links um, that are in the app. And honestly, I think that if this were an announcement by a really popular, powerful man in his mid 50s who's made a name not just in recommending books but in like very cannily and with good taste snagging the film rights to them developing films and tv series that perform very well and giving themselves starring roles in those things Mm -hmm. and earning praise like reese witherspoon is very stealthily doing a whole thing around Mm -hmm. using the power of her influence to connect books and her movie business. And it seems stealthy because she's a blonde woman with a Southern accent. This is really very smart. Yeah, the the pink cardigan selfie is a dissemb- it's dissembling in a way of right. how cagey the whole thing is and, and maybe as much a, a an expression of my own bias about what i recognize as cagey but there's a um i don't know a, an informality right to the, the a conversationality a mm-hmm. informality a humanness um that's brought to bear i think of some of which draws people to witherspoon herself and then her book club in particular she seems herself really to enjoy books and yeah. reading and it be clearly becomes part of something she cares about. I think she is as close as we have now to the Oprah we once did in terms of influence about book and books and reading. Oprah didn't care to continue it. So it leads me to wonder, what does success look like for Reese Witherspoon at this point mm-hmm. in this? What does the book club app thing give her that she didn't have before? Is it the commerce parts? Like, well, you might as well buy from Reese's Book Club, easy to buy here in special editions, and I can get my Reese's Book Club swag and all that kind of stuff is too. I guess one of the other things that Amazon did in commoditizing book buying 
was I do think leave opens open some space for the curative part, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the retailing or the curation part, the curation and retail pieces in the form of bookstores, um, you know, independent bookstores going all the way back were hand in glove. But if you take those things apart, right, if it's no longer required for you to be a curator and have a store, a literal store that people come into, is the business of curation itself a business? And I don't think we've answered that question yet, Rebecca. Yeah. I haven't seen this really happen. Yeah, I I don't know. I think this might be part of getting the answer to it. You know, one of the yeah. other selling points of the app, it's the very first thing listed on the features is that you get to be part of the like announcements of the new picks so that you can pick up a copy or reserve your copy at the library before everyone else wants the title. Fascinating. Which I think is very true. That happens with the Reese's yes. Book Club picks. And anecdotally, we see a lot of mentions of Reese's Book Club in profiles that come in for the TBR mm-hmm. service where people either say like, I read all the Reese's Book Club books and things like those are what I want you to recommend me. Or I read all the Reese's Book Club books, so make sure you're not sending me the those like this it's really very popular and there i think you know that reese witherspoon and tom hanks kind of go together in my head and in the way that like we trust tom hanks because he seems genuinely invested in the thing that he's doing and he's also very good at making it make money for himself yeah i think we're seeing that earnestness is part of the brand for both. yeah exactly that i think she genuinely loves books and part of the mission of the book club is to advance diverse voices and i think she genuinely cares about that and you can see it in the casting of her shows and movies you can see it in her work to elevate women in the world of hollywood which is just an ongoing (laughs) struggle so it's a it's very cagey but not in but cagey's not a bad thing it's very smart she's good at this and she has figured out ways to make it profitable and also not for nothing once you own the app and everyone's email addresses you can Mm -hmm. you have all kinds of access so like i will not be surprised if there start being ads for sponsored items to Reese's Book Club or publishers paying to give their books away to a select number of Reese's Book Club winners. Like this has a lot of opportunity. And I I think I would be very surprised if this thing ran its course without the members ever being used as recipients of advertising. No, I mean, there's, they're not, they're not doing this for, um, it's not to be uh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's not, it's, well, it's, it's not, uh, altruistic, right? It's a service and, you know, people have a right to, to make some money. They got to pay the VP of whoever that's quoted here. Like they got to earn a living somehow. Tell, riddle me this back girl. Is it impressive that Reese's book club has 2 million Instagram followers and, and I'm, I'm, I'm stacking the deck knowing that Reese herself has 25 million Instagram followers. It, what do you think about that function? Hmm. I mean, in, in a nut, in an, in oven in itself, it is impressive. 2 million followers for a book club on Instagram is impressive, <laughs> but that's less than 10% of her followers. I just find that interesting. Yeah, right? well, I don't know what else to do with that. Well, I mean, I haven't looked at a while, so I don't know like the percentage of the population that's on Instagram right now, but I think there are a lot of people who interact with the Reese's book club picks without using Instagram, or they're just looking for the sticker on the book at their bookstores, Mm -hmm. or they hear about it from their book club or wherever. Um, 
it isn't, I wonder, like, I'm sure they'll never tell us, but I'm interested about, you know, after six months, how many active users does yeah. this app have? It's really Yo. hard. It's, it's like, a, I get why they tried it. I think if you mm-hmm. have built this kind of community and you see that kind of receptivity around your ideas, you kind of have to wonder what would it be like if we built our own sandbox and invited all these people into it. The big question for me is, do will people actually do it? Do people want to go onto an app and talk about where the crawdads mm. sing with strangers or are they totally happy just letting <sighs> talk about a nightmare <laughs> <laughs> i mean nightmare. For, for you and me yes <laughs> you are the only person in the world i wanted to talk about where the crawdads sing and even with. that was a 50 50 proposition <laughs> yeah <laughs> Or, or like, are they satisfied just with her as a curator? Um, yeah. I think that's a really interesting question, but I completely understand why they feel the need to get the answer oh, to that totally question. Oh, totally agree. I think, I, if I haven't said, I think this is a really yeah. good idea to yeah. try. I don't know if it's going to succeed. I don't know what success looks like. But if the matriculation from following Reese herself to the, the book club is 1.9, will you see a similar sort of mm. matriculation rate down to another 10% of those people? All right, you're looking at 190,000 users. Sounds like a lot. Not for nothing. That's one day of bookriot.com per month. Right. <laughs> Which we have a business. It's great. But I'm not sure Reith Witherspoon is looking at one day of us and be like, I want in on that. I mean, it's like, I don't know. I, I'm just not sure. Um, so maybe they hope to grow it from there. Uh, maybe they, they're wondering about the commerce bit. I, I don't really have a good sense of the strategy. And I'd like to play around with it a little mm-hmm. bit more. But I think they are trying, they've got heat around Reese's book club. How do you channel that into something is really hard. It's really hard. It's really, really hard to figure out what to do with that. Though I think if I had to bet money on someone figuring it out, I would think it would be them. Because we've seen, I mean, I've talked in sales meetings about, publishers always ask us about, well, we love book clubs. You know, maybe Book Riot should do a book club. And we've done our own kinds. And we've seen, more than anything, though, we've seen other publications try online book clubs. Mm-hmm. And let me just say, I can't name any that's still around that I care about that do anything interesting. That the book club idea doesn't seem to be super portable to the internet and at scale. The book club, as we think about it, is like, let's be honest, seven to 10 women, generally speaking, mm-hmm. sitting around talking about a book like Reese Witherspoon is picking doesn't seem at this moment in time to have an external reference online. That's not people on Zoom doing the same thing in the pandemic. To have some, I think the book club, the book club, the book club term itself is super telling about why it works at a home and why it doesn't on the internet. Will this break out of that? I would love to find out. I'm yeah. very interested to see. It is a great question, and no one has successfully adapted it. Like th- that discussion, robust discussion of books, I think, to the online platforms that exist. If you have like 5,000 people, remember when Mark Zuckerberg had a book club on yeah. Facebook? Remember that? Yeah. And I do. That I remember looking at the comments of it for the first couple selections. Oh, God. And it becomes a disaster super yes. quickly because moderating a conversation where like 5,000 people are all commenting at the same time is not a conversation. And mm-hmm. then Slack became a thing that exists in the world. And lots of people are used to communicating by Slack. But even if you added like a Slack to Reese's book club, it's almost impossible to moderate. <sighs> and a Slack with 5,000 people in it is still just a bunch of posts on the internet that 
actual conversation like you're going to have at book club becomes really difficult. So I think like maybe the closest you could get is if you built something like this and you were like, when you sign up, you will be randomly assigned to a discussion group of eight people and you and those other seven people will have like oh your little, god. which it's sounds like horrible, lost. right? It's like lost in a seminar room after right? hours. Like, oh my God, yeah, Rebecca, like I don't, yeah. I don't want to experience that, but it's yeah. the way that you would get like the small group and the discussion, mm. you know, could actually feel like a conversation. It feels to me like book clubs as they exist in people's homes and around tables at coffee shops are one of the things that are just really resistant to online adaptation. And I think that the fact that we see like Reese's book club really just means a bunch of people reading the book that Reese recommends. Oprah's book club. Yeah, it's picks in a vibe, right? That's what the Reese book club is. It's like picks in a vibe. It is. like, And there's maybe a sense of identity or connection to be part of that. At the same time, it's so broad, I think intentionally and for smart reasons on their part. But like, if you were at a party back in the time of life when parties were a thing that we went to and you're chatting with someone and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm a Reese's book club person or I'm an Oprah's book club person. That doesn't really tell you much beyond this person likes books. It's the new mainstream. It's the new middle brow. I mean, and I don't use that derogatively. I love middle brow. Give me some middle brow. Not enough But this is the new... Stand. This is the new median. Yeah, guess, there's not enough information term. there. Just the shared affinity for Reese's books is not enough information about like our shared affinities as human beings for why we should have a connection right. to each other. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would love if there's an academic paper out there or a th- long think piece in like the Atlantic or something about the what makes for an ideal Witherspoon book club picks. And I don't mean this snarkily because I think the books are very good. I, I mm-hmm. like, I've read and like most, if not all of the ones that I've read that she's picked. So it's not, it's not snobbery or looking down, but it feels like there is a, you know, you know, like when they have to, um, they have to re-enter the earth's atmosphere. They always say <laughs> there's like a, there's like a thing the size of a piece of paper. Like it does feel like there's a, a narrowish, but interesting, gap like that that's what the space is that's identifiable like the vibe i can kind of get but i can't quite articulate i had this question for you we're running out of time here and we want to get to lavar in just a minute um at least as a shout out but um i am surprised what isn't here in this mm. app at least what i've read about so far any thoughts about you want to play guess what jeff's thinking or as i like to call it welcome to my podcast rebecca <laughs> uh any idea what I'm surprised isn't here? I've got two major ones and a couple of other minor ones. That Are you surprised that they aren't running their own bookstore? Well, they, I don't know how the e-commerce is. I'm surprised it's there's just, not a, like a book of the month club equivalent. Like there's not a sub. There's not a subscription where you get yeah. every month you get Reese's. I'm surprised that's not there. That's number two on um, my list. The, the, the e-commerce is buy it. It's for buy the book on Google Play, Bookshop, Libro, Amazon, or Barnes & Noble. Right. So it's just affiliates? They're getting affiliate shit from that? Yeah, here, it seems let, me, small potatoes. let me just click on one. Oh, I'm, um, oh you've, you're looking at your phone right now. Okay, great. Oh, no, I'm looking at the internet, but just clicking on, like I clicked on a title. Um, hmm. It, uh, man, I'm like way down this URL and I am not. Oh, there it is. Yes, it's affiliate. I was like waiting to see the affiliate yeah. tag. Yeah, they're just getting affiliate. Oh, we know stuff. It's affiliate <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I knew I guess it had it makes to be sense there. Because they don't. They also can't, what they're trying to do, they want to make interesting picks. They care about diversity, 
but they also can't make too many decisions about the retailing pot spots because then you start to fragment. If you make it n- only Amazon, have fun. That's mm-hmm. going to be great. If you don't include Amazon, have fun. That's going to be great. Um, no, the number one thing, when you think about you want the book club, you want the vibe, you want the picks and the hang, why is there not a, a Reese Witherspoon book club podcast on Spotify? Oh. Surely someone at Spotify said, Reese, come on and host your book club podcast. This is what people want. The things that people like about podcasts and the things they like about book clubs, I think there's overlap there. They like the community, the conversation, and the intimacy of feeling like you are... I'm not even sure a book club... Some people want to talk, but a lot of people want to be a part of the hang. And mm-hmm. I think you could transmit the hang of Reese's book club in a podcast form. I I'm think, very surprised they didn't do this. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. I think you are correct. It's really interesting that that's not on the table, especially as I've seen other just popular podcasts start to sort of journey into the book club yes. kind of thing. Like for reasons I can't go into because we're near the end of the show, I found myself listening to Tim Ferriss's podcast at the end of the holidays. And you keep got, teasing that we're going to have to talk about that at some point. So we better to get of our system at some point. Um, he has, you know, authors on occasionally and Hillary Clinton had Louise Penny on one episode of her mm-hmm. podcast because they're friends and they talked about the importance of books and stories. And I, I think for the most part, author interviews are like the most boring way of talking about books, but the hang of a book club, like, like if Michelle Obama did a book club episode on her podcast and it was her and some of the women that she's had on the show having a conversation about the book and like maybe the author gets to come on for a little while. Cool. Also, if the author never appeared, that would be equally cool. Also like, cool. Yes. Yeah. Brene Brown has authors on her show and it's mostly like they're kind of book clubbing it together, how the book got made and what's significant going on there. I mean, you're right. That would have been a really good idea. I'm so interested in why they don't have it. Because if you would have told me, because when I saw this news, and if I, if the only thing it was was a Patreon podcast, I would be like, that makes sense. I would be yeah. like, that would be, again, I like podcasts. You might, you're listening to one right now. So you, you know that sometimes there's a bit of a hammer nail situation for how I think about content, like what do I like and what would I do? I just feel like you, you could get hundreds of thousands, you could get, well, tens of thousands of people <laughs> to pay two bucks a month to listen to The Hang, I think. That feels an easier monetization strategy if that's what they care about. And again, I don't know exactly what their their goal is here. Um, but that would be something people would pay. Reese talking about the books with who? It doesn't yeah. matter. And I don't maybe, think. I don't know. Maybe they have it planned and it's like a thing that will become available in the app later on. Yeah. That would be a way to make this app. Like, it's a free app. You can access the book picks for free. Like, the only Mm -hmm. money that currently it looks like they can make inside the app is if you buy one of the books by clicking the link while you're inside the app and they get the affiliate revenue. So I think at some point they're going to monetize in some fashion. And you can only sell so many Reese's Book Club tote bags, which I assume will also be a thing. Yeah, right. Because the one thing that people in the world of books and reading don't have enough of is, is tote bags. Yeah, and some of this could be some of this could be a stake in the ground. They want to see how many people download this. What do they mm-hmm. do? Maybe they don't want it to be. There's a minimum viable um, product here. That is, come sign up. Get early. I think the early access to the library picks is a great idea. We we've done things like here's what you should put on hold at the library now mm-hmm. before they're out. Someone wrote in this. We didn't do listener feedback. I'm collecting some, but someone wrote in to talk about um, the survivors. 
that they, oh. when they heard us talk about, it, like I want to go put it on the the uh, at the on the hold list, you know, nice. right when we talked about it, and they were already number one hundred ninety seven. Oh my gosh. on their hold list for the their survivors by Jane Harper. I was gonna go get on the hold list, then I was gonna buy an ebook, but then I balked because it was freaking fourteen ninety nine. <laughs> For the ebook, and it was eighteen ninety five to get a hardcover, and I was haven't d- made a decision yet. I'm paralyzed by I'd, fury. I about downloaded the, the galley for free. Yeah, see, you one percenters, one, you, you galley <laughs> one percenters. You have my Edelweiss login, but I choose not to use it. Rebecca. Well, it's not my problem. Let's do our last sponsor and, do, and talk about Lavar for a minute. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Team. In a world where the children of the gods inherit their powers, a descendant of the Greek fates must solve a series of impossible murders to save her sisters, her soulmate, and her city. Descendants of the fates are always born in threes. There's one to weave, one to draw, and one to cut the threads that connect people to the things they love and to life itself. And the Aura sisters are no exceptions. There is Eo, the youngest, who uses her fate-born abilities as a private investigator, but her latest job leads her to a horrific discovery. Somebody is abducting women and setting the resulting wraiths loose in the city to kill. Now, the second book in the series, Hearts That Cut, will be on sale June 18th, 2024. This is a must-read for all Greek mythology and fantasy fans. This is dripping with atmosphere, edged with danger. Threads That Bind weaves together a gorgeous dark tapestry of mystery, fated romance, and modern myth. You won't be able to put this one down. And that comes from Alexandra Bracken, New York Times bestselling author of Lore. So make sure to pick up Threads That Bind by Kitsa Hatsapolu. And thanks again to Penguin Teen for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eilin. Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increased more sus when he and Shue barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. LeVar, your friend, colleague, I'd say confidant <laughs> even. I mean... Too strong? One time, my face touched his face. So we're basically besties. That's right. Figures as much. <laughs> Tell me about LeVar, Rebecca. Take us home by telling LeVar us about LeVar Burton was named this week as the inaugural Penn Faulkner Literary Champion, which I like this name for an award. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Um, it's going to be a new annual, they're calling it a commendation, which that's just a pleasing word also. That it will Right, commendation. Like you feel fancy if someone's going to yeah. give you a commendation. It feels uh, better than a word too, right? Because it's not like it trophy does. hunting, like it's commendation. It's nice All those syllables. That. Yeah, that's a good, yes. just a good word. Um, anyway, it will every year recognize devoted literary advocacy and a commitment to inspiring new generations of readers and writers. Um, he's going to be honored in a virtual ceremony on May 10th, which is um, at the same time that the Penn Faulkner Award winner, which is the 40th year uh, of that, is going to be announced. And if you're setting out to honor each year a person who's working to inspire generations of readers and writers, I don't think there's a better first choice. You can shut it down after this, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Yeah. LeVar Burton, all-time literary champion. (laughs) Yeah, um, I think this is a cool award. I think it's very smart because no one cares about the Ben Faulkner Award. Or they (laughs) do. Interesting. I think people who do, but more people care about that care about books care about LeVar Burton. So if he's going to be the champion and that gets him to be the thing that hosts the thing on Zoom or whatever, Mm -hmm. that picks the knockout queen by Rufy Thorpe, which is one of the finalists here, that brings more heat (laughs) to the the thing. If that's the strategy, it'll be interesting to see who they find next year. I think they also should rename the Penn Faulkner thing. Like the slash Mm. isn't what working for me anymore. No. Call it the Penn Award or the Faulkner. Just just choose a lane here. Slashes are... You know what? They should just... Postmodernist graduate school. We should rename everything now as a commendation. The LeVar? uh, Sure. The the, the the 2021 commendation for fiction. Mm, I like that. (laughs) Quickly, before we get out of here... Who are the next three draft picks for the commendation? Who would oh. who would be the next three? Generations. I mean, Oprah's. I think. Uh, uh, yeah. I think Oprah's next. I think Could generation, have been first. Yeah, generations of readers and writers. You've got to go, Oprah. Um, I think prior to the last couple of years, J.K. Rowling could have had a spot on yep, that list, yep, but yep, no yep, longer. Yep, yep, no longer. Ooh, somebody else who writes like really pop. Enduringly Stephen popular King? children's books. Stephen, Stephen King? King would be good. James Patterson, honestly, um, yeah, for his advocacy work would be a candidate. Hmm. Jill, Biden. Nora, yeah, Nora, Nora Roberts, um, Laura Bush, Laura Bush, interesting one. Amanda Gorman, who's now oh. going to be performing at the Super Bowl. She gets performing the com- at the Super Bowl. All the commendations for all the things forever. We're done. I now. saw something else that I, it was like another thing. I was like, oh, that makes sense. It's just like she's going to own Ford Motor Company. You could tell me anything now about right. them. And I was like, sure, why not? Let's do it. I mean, Sounds good to it me. It is not a small feat to go on national television at the biggest political event of four years and make poetry cool. We didn't get to talk about it. Jen and I did spend a minute on it. I'm not sure if you listened to us, but like I, I know you were as blown mm-hmm. away as I was at, at that moment. Yeah, Amanda, yeah, that's interesting to think about that um, on the artistic side, on the cultural side, it's a, or on the, I don't even know what you would, Reese? I mean, you, it's oh. not, in, it's not, I mean, I don't think she has at the all. longevity yet. No. In 20 years, maybe? Sure. Maybe, maybe. It's what I'm. I guess what I was getting at. It's not a long list. I guess. Yeah. The I think lo- there's maybe. not a huge list. Once you can start dipping into the author well, which you could do for a long time, you get your George Martins or whatever. But like, and I don't maybe think it's a super long list. You know, maybe they're out of the gate with a 
very fancy first selection like LeVar Burton to draw attention to it. But you could, Penn Faulkner tends to be a little more industry inside baseball-y, I think. And you could get a lot of mileage here out of honoring like editors and publishers that have done groundbreaking yeah. or important work. But that's but that means you're not as cynical as I am, which we're using <laughs> the the celebrity spotlight to like get the halo effect oh, so someone believe, by, accidentally pays attention to the the I believe that here. they're using the celebrity spotlight this year. If they intended to do that every year, I think that they maybe failed to consider really how few people will qualify. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So it's like we're through I'm, four and we're done. Wow. Right. And so I'm trying to, um, hey, for once, I'm having a generous interpretation. <laughs> I'm trying to assume yeah. that it wasn't that it didn't occur to them that there are only like a dozen people. It was that maybe they intended to come out the gate fancy, but like really be a little bit more work a day going forward. Yeah. We'll and maybe, there's probably people, you know, we could do Fran Leibowitz or, you know, you could get people that have some, you, you know, you're uh Seth Meyers of the world, Tina sure. Fey. You know, there's people that care about books that wouldn't turn this a couple of things like this down. Let me just say, I meant to tell you this, and I'll tell I'll tell it to you in front of everyone on the internet <laughs> who cares to listen. I'm so um, excited. Michelle and I watched the Pretend It's a City, the Martin Scorsese. Oh yeah, uh-huh. about Fran Lebowitz. And there's, I think it's the last episode that's devoted to her love of books and reading, um, especially which is fact. She's a cantankerous mm-hmm. and fascinating and flawed person, like most of us are. Not me, but um. Well, I mean, you're definitely there, not cantankerous. There's footage of an there's a there's a there's footage of her interviewing Tony. Mm. Um, and we remember when when the great Morrison passed that one of the most heartfelt and touching and surprising yes commendations elegies was from Leibowitz. And we're and I remember both of you commenting either in private or on the pod or, or or in some combination thereof. Like, isn't it an interesting odd couple? Wouldn't you watch the Thelma and Louise doc of Tony and Fran oh. bopping around Man- Tribeca back in the day? We're never going to get that. But there's the footage of Tony was genuinely delighted by Fran's whole thing. Whatever <laughs> she there's, I want to find it's it's in s it's like in this terrible VHS quality that I know Scorsese probably was like pulling his hair out to have to include, but the footage is so great that he's like, I've got to put it in there. And I'd love to find, it looks like it's some uh, public library interview. Mm. I would love to do the whole thing on audio. I don't need to watch the thing. But she was so visibly tickled by Fran's, you know, chaotic, dark energy. Uh, and Fran, you know, as a, you know, and she, Fran was trying to press her on something and Tony was laughing and said, well, you said that, not me. And it was just great. It's everything I wanted it to be, uh-huh. everything I hoped to be. And my sadness of not having uh, Fran and Tony's guide to lower Manhattan um, as a thing I get to watch. Uh, it's too I will, bad, but I thought I would pass that along for you and the rest of our listeners. I well. love that. I will have to. It's on my Netflix list. I will have to get there yeah. sooner rather than later. Um, you can skip around. You don't need to do all. Okay, of Okay, I may just go to. straight. It's a to lot that of Fran. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of Fran. You have to. You have to really like New York, uh, and you have to really like someone complaining about New York, <laughs> which is a particular flavor of ice cream. Uh, I'm not sure it's for everyone, but I did find that delightful. You can email us, podcast at bookriot.com, if you've got thoughts, comments. Um, Votes will be closed for a spring preview draft by the time you hear this. Um, It's going to be close. I'll say no more at this particular moment. You can find show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. You can also, if you want, thanks for listening, but also if you want to, go to bookriot.com 
and it's a very good website. We like it. We made it. Less, we, do. we make it less than we used to. But you can find us there. You can also just search for Book Riot on your podcast player of choice and see mm-hmm. all of our lineup of podcasts as well. Also, if you wanted to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, we haven't talked about that in a while. You can do that, especially if they're nice. Especially if they're <laughs> nice. We would like you to do that. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time. Have a good one. Thank <laughs> you.